This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Prophecies. The Chicago International Film Festival. Piotr Rachkowski. And Ken meets a lava lamp. the part where we talk about murder. Right. Murder of Crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of Crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom, Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Murder of Crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Manfred Gabriel asks Ken and Robin, how do you handle prophecy in role-playing games? Between the poles of Cassandra doomed to be right but not believed, and Macbeth's three witches setting the whole mess in motion, how do you confront players with prophecies about the future, or even let them prophesy? Robin, what's your preferred prophecy go-to? Well, uh, I guess the first thing to do is to knock off the easiest of those bullet points and say, for Cassandra, it's super easy to give the characters a uh, prophecy that is not going to be believed. Right. Uh, because you can just make sure something horrible happens that they then have to cope with. Um, in most games, you will want to have that not be the final act, but perhaps the first act twist in which you then cope with the aftermath of being the one who saw the terrible thing happening. And then you get to presumably do something to hopefully make things uh, better. Uh, because, of course, the problem with prophecies is if they are absolutely reliable and understandable prophecies, it feels like your freedom of choice as a player is taken away from you. So I guess the other thing you would want to do with Cassandra is prepare the players pretty early on for the likelihood that they are not going to be believed so that what they can do during even that first act when they're running around saying, hey, you know, the the uh, 
volcano is going to blow. Uh, I've seen the volcano very clearly. And they're like, oh, no, no, our anti-volcano technology works fine. We've Here's the specs. See, it's the same people who run uh, nuclear reactors in Japan. They do a great job. Don't worry about it. Go back to your lab, Jor-El. Yes, exactly. Uh, so that you know what's coming. And so already you can start preparing, uh, you know, putting your metaphorical baby in your metaphorical spaceship. So that, again, the, the amount of time in which you are constrained from useful action when you know that what you're doing is futile is uh, pretty short. And the amount of time in which you're prepping for the disaster that you know is going to come is really your main focus because nobody wants to run a prolonged session where you just keep getting shut down and shut down and shut down. So even in that, I would be inclined to like play out the first scene where you go to the uh, volcanologist league to uh, alert them to the status of the volcano and they shut you down. And then you play that scene out in full. And then maybe you do a briefer scene where you run to the political authorities and then you might even montage the and then for the next three days until you realize no one's going to listen to you because no one wants to hear it and then sort of quickly move on to giving them a range of choice the trickier thing is having a uh, prophecy that they want to come true but uh, realize that you know it's sure it's a prophecy but the prophecy probably measures uh, you know, you can't just sit around at home if you're t if you're if it's foretold that you will be the one to take the magic sword to the mountain and overcome many obstacles and finally th thrust the magic sword into the mountain and open it up and release the river of fertility that will save the land. You still got to do stuff. You can't just be, you know, sit on your nice, comfortable hobbit stool at home and wait for that to happen. Uh, it can't be 100 percent. You know that, you know, so you have to have a prophecy where there's caveats. You know, if their hearts are right and they uncipher the decipher the, the code of the three, and you don't know what the code of the three is, so that they uh, the prophecy uh, points to different stations of your mission, but doesn't guarantee that you're going to succeed. Because again, that's something that works in narrative, but not in interactive fiction like uh, role-playing games. Well, you could ha even have a prophecy that guarantees that they're going to succeed, right? It's like you know, you are the you are the one who is born to thrust the sword into the mountain. And it could even be, you know, that the, the Oracle leaves it at that. You're born to do that. And then they're up there, you know, confident, well, we're going to thrust the sword in the prophecy said, look how easy these gnolls are to fight. And then as the gnolls sort of back away, here comes the gnoll shaman who says, ah, you're uh, the newest sword thruster. Excellent. I've needed more sword thruster bones for my research. And <laughs> if you even just throw one other credible supernatural, and it's not even like the prophecy is wrong, you know, because you, you can say that whoever is going to thrust the sword will have to beat this guy, which means he's going to have to take the, the, the trophy made from all the previous sword thrusters and, and use it somehow. Oh, I was born to do this, but so were 500 other guys. Yeah, this and, is uh, not good. 500 gals. And, uh, and that's uh, the advantage of F20 is that there's no sole source prophecy, right? Right. That you, 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 um, you got your prophecy from Osiris, and Osiris never lies except for, you know, the last day of the month when he's at you know, that time for him. But um, you can uh, go to... Uh, the God of the Orcs, Scrooge or whatever he is, and Scrooge has got his own set of prophecies, and you can cast divination, and divination will give you the sort of very, uh, you know, uh, blank answer to two questions, but they're not going to be, you know, um, uh, will I succeed, won't I succeed? They're more like, you know, how many gnolls are there on the mountain type questions, right? Right, and so without uh, omniscience, that makes your job easier, and uh, uh, also you can have a world where some uh prophecies are false prophecies and sometimes uh 
people in all good uh, faith and goodwill receive uh, emanations from demons. I was this a, a, a prophecy sent by a knoll demon meant to lure you up to the mountain so that he could take your sword and uh, use your bones uh, for uh, his experiments, or uh, is it a is it a valid prophecy? Now I was so going to say, and if the and if the prophet is an NPC prophet, then you have the question of their agenda as well as their source. I mean, they might not be getting the information from demons, they might either be manipulating the prophecy for political ends, like the Pythia was supposed to have done, the the prophetess of Greece, or uh, they might be wrong about, because they're stoned out of their mind on bay leaves, and so they can't really, you know, parse everything that they saw, or they've got a even truer part prophecy, but they know lying to you about the prophecy is the way to make their even truer prophecy happen. And then as you keep going and the man, there's a lot of obstacles on the way up this mountain, but no, the Pythia said that if we just, you know, kept going there, and then finally they get to the thing where, you know, there's a, a chained up hero and he's like, ah, finally the sword is here. Great. Just chop off my chains and I'll take it from here. And they're, Hey, what a, what's that about? And it's like, no, the Pythia knew that you would, you know, be up there and that at least one of you would get the sword to me. So problem solved. Give me the sword. And now, you can, you you know, maybe you're both prophesied to bring the sword of the mountain, but whose prophecy outweighs, right? Right. And then, of course, there's your uh, good old ambiguous prophecy. That's the witches in Macbeth, where uh, <laughs> everything they say is true, but, uh, you know, oh, Burnham Wood is coming your way. What? Um, so that uh, there's always a way where you can uh, present, uh, you know, as long as it's an iambic pentameter and somewhat poetic, there will be uh, room to surprise you with what the instigating prophecy given to you by the uh, non-player yeah, characters. If a prophecy contains a simile or metaphor, you're probably in trouble. Yes. Or, <laughs> you're or, safe as well, houses. The, the you're players are in trouble. The, the GM, the GM is, uh, is in good. Um, and so I guess the next question is uh, prophecies given to the uh, players. And I think there's all sorts of cool ways that you could uh, do that. Uh, if you just say, I think, to a player, oh, give me a prophecy that you receive, I think you want to make sure that you don't have your legalistic, uh, tongue-in-cheek, subversive player uh, field that one, uh, that you want to give it to someone who's going to, you know, uh, take it in the spirit in which it's given. So, you know, say, you know, bring me a prophecy for next week. That's your homework. Make sure there's at least three me metaphors and two ambiguous images. Yes. Or what you could do is you could hold up a series of images to the player. It's like, oh, well, yes, you have a prophetic vision. Hold up picture of tiger. Hold up picture of tree on fire. Hold up picture of river with frogs jumping into it. There's your prophecy. One of the things about prophetic characters in uh, fiction, there's been a couple of TV series over the years where there's a psychic detective and they're cheats because psychically, somehow the detective gets more psychic vision as the episode continues. So really the psychic just has to not, you know, wait until they get the final psychic vision at the end that tells them what to do. But in a, a role-playing game context, I think that actually works a little better where, uh, oh, now that you've seen the tiger, uh, you get another vision that brings into uh, context the... The tree on fire. The, the tree on fire. And you see now uh, that the you escape being eaten by the tiger. You see now that there's a ring of gnolls around the tree on fire. And look, you see a smoke off in the distance. And I guess um, that brings up another point, which is... Uh, in any prophecy scenario, you want to make sure that you have a group of players who enjoy clear signposts showing them where to go next. Because there's, um, you hear a lot of uh, people who are very concerned about railroading online, and, and we've talked 
before about how there's 16 different definitions of that. But one of them is just that I think a lot of people want a pure kind of sandboxy experience where they just have absolute choice at all times and they don't care how plotty the thing is. And they can always find on their own something to go and, and poke. And I think for a story where prophecy heavily features into it, you, uh, or at least where the heroes are trying to fulfill a prophecy, you want to make sure that you have the other kind of group where they're, uh, don't want to do a lot of the deciding what the story is stuff. They want to have a sort of a clear assignment and they're perfectly happy to be led from the tiger to the flaming tree to the uh, river full of frogs. Yeah. One of the things that we do in my games, uh, whenever the game uh, sort of context allows it, we're doing it, for example, in the Unknown Armies game now, is if there's a need for a prophecy, one of the characters is playing a, a not to get too deep into the Unknown Armies weeds, but in addition to everything else he is, he's also a cardomancer. He does card magic. And so we got a deck of William Blake tarot cards and we do a reading. If we feel like, you know, if he's like, I want to find out what's going on and I'm going to ask the cards. I say, all right, let's ask the cards. Bam, bam, bam. There you go. And much like your tiger tree on fire river of frogs, except in this case, it's William Blake and the tarot, which combine to create all manner of dubious and uh, exciting images that don't, that mean anything you want them to, because Blake is a brilliant artist and the tarot is a, um, uh, is is a game for fortune tellers to rook people with with cold with cold reading or or it is now obviously it began as a really complex game of bridge and uh, another thing that would be fun to play with is just the knowledge up front that the people giving the prophecy are giving you the most probable thing that they see happening now but it's a world where free will exists and as long as anyone has free will all they can do is see the most likely outcome of events as they are currently progressing so that every time you do something that changes the most likely outcome. And so that can, uh, and that could even be done in like a science fiction context, right? That you either have an alien species who uh, has the ability to read probabilities. You could have a superhero that does that as well. Or Or AI. Right. Or AI, or, you know, you have a probability uh, reading matrix, it sounds sort of Asimov-y. And with all of those things, you can it can sort of give you a progress report to how you're doing, right? That if you meet the tiger and, uh, you know, wrestle it and it gives you its secret, then uh, you're told, oh, well, your, your chances of uh, reaching the Frog River and uh, unblocking whatever flow in reality is uh, threatening the world have now increased to 65%. And then you go to the uh, tree on fire and there's knolls there and you, uh, they uh, push you back and then you you know, you know check your uh, compass of fate and now you see, oh, now we only have a 52% chance of doing whatever it is we're supposed to do at, at the River of Frogs. And so that mechanism, rather than sort of taking away suspense by spoiling the ending before you get to it, could increase the suspense so it's like you you now have a metric to see how you're doing and of course as gm you could just be you know wildly making this up as you go along or you could figure that uh you you know you could have different mechanical signposts of uh you could total up how many hit points everybody has taken and how close they are to death and that somehow correlates to uh how uh far back that the compass goes or, or or what have you so there's all sorts of space to play there with the idea of limited but mathematically measurable prophecy. That also sets up the great sort of uh, out of the prophets have agreed that this is the crucial time when the forces of good and evil are balanced and you can tip the scales by your actions. And in a way, that prophecy is just saying, this is a role-playing game. (laughs) 
<laughs> you are now in a thing that is supposed to be exciting and you are supposed to make big decisions that will affect the world, not just dick around stabbing goblins. <laughs> you know, and so the, uh, the, a lot of the prophecy exists sort of just as, as motivators. I mean, it doesn't really have any tactical use because it's so vague, you know, uh, evil is rising. Um, or, you know, it's, oh, it's only tactical advice is at the end, not during. So it's, you know, make sure you stab that sword into the mountain. Uh, what do I do? What's going to happen on the mountain? Are there goblins? Are there gorgons? Uh, gnolls? Anything? Well, I don't know. Probably something that begins with cheese. Sure. But, uh, but in terms of the prophecy as sort of the whole, you know, full on vision of the headlines of the, of, of the newspaper for the next week or the image of your character doing something specific in the future, that's uh, a little harder to work in to a game. And that's sort of maybe uh, should move into its own more detailed segment. But uh, I mean, I think that obviously it's a truism that more, the more details you've put in your prophecy that you feel obliged as a GM to honor, the more work you just made yourself. Right. Right. Uh, because in Macbeth, I guess the, uh, the first element of the prophecy happens right away, and then there's another two elements of the prophecy that uh, come into play at the end. But it's not like after that, uh, Macbeth isn't uh, hanging around wondering when the prophecy is going to take place. He thinks he's in the clear. Mm -hmm. He thinks the rest of it is not going to come down on him. Um, and just to close as an example of a, my most recent session had a prophecy in it. We were playing drama system and the uh, it's uh, the alma mater magica campaign where uh, in disappointed middle age, the uh, people who saved the world at wizard school when they were kids all come back to the same faculty. And they're uh, facing the great nemesis who almost destroyed the world when they were kids. And they were told that what will happen if we try and undo, if we recreate the ritual again, can we uh, make it permanent this time? And so uh, as one of the uh, NPCs, I had the character say, well, uh, you can, uh, if you do the ritual, you can plunge a spear into the heart of the Morgan, and there's a 50% chance that it will destroy her forever and protect the world forever, and a 50% chance that it will make her stronger. And so that then uh, basically doesn't tell you anything about where the story is going to go, but it does create a sense of stakes, and it does uh, make for a a very difficult choice for the uh, uh, players suggesting that they somehow need to do something that changes those odds in some way. And on that note, I predict that we're going to have a commercial and then I prophecy another segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent 
or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope! Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrain website right now! Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. The length of the lineup, the shouted exhortations to make sure that we've separated all of our tickets before we submit them to tearing, and uh, the grumbling of people behind us saying that this is not as well run as it was last year tells us that we are once again uh, in the confines uh, not just of the Cinema Hut, but a particularly film festival-y Cinema Hut, and in this case, it's uh, Ken's baby in that he goes to it. <laughs> and in no other sense. In no years. other sense. Uh, the Chicago International Film Festival, which this year was uh, your assault on the festival was uh, somewhat blunted by your need to watch a whole bunch of uh, Dracula films. Mm -hmm. Some of them perhaps not as good as films that you would have seen at the festival. Perhaps. Perhaps. But you did see a number of films, so we're here to uh, talk about those and... The first of those is a film called They Look Like People, which is a great title, directed by Perry Blackshear, and that's uh, an American film. That's an indie film, I take it? Yeah, it's an independent movie. Uh, the guy basically is directing... It, it's, it's low budget in the sense that it can't possibly have cost any money to make, uh, but it's not filmed in a low budget way. I mean, everything is, is totally professional sound and uh, cinematography and editing and everything else. It it's a really good movie. It just looks like a movie that, because it has two unknown actors and, um, uh, uh, <laughs> and was, um, you know, shot basically in pickup locations in Brooklyn somewhere, can't have cost any money to make. But it is an independent production. Uh, Black Shears, the producer, as well as the director and the writer and the cinematographer. So, you know, he's he, right there. That's four salaries saved. Uh, so the premise is... And the premise is that one character, uh, Wyatt, is a sort of drifter. He's uh, the best friend of the character Christian. And Christian has a good job in New York, which he is sort of trying to get better at and trying to sort of come to grips with the fact that his girlfriend has left him and he's sort of reinventing himself. And at the same moment that he's doing that, his buddy Wyatt comes back into his life. They're best friends from forever. and so. Because uh, Christian is a good guy, he invites Wyatt to stay with him, even though he senses that Wyatt is, you know, doesn't have a job, isn't here visiting any other friends, is just sort of adrift, but he's reaching out to him and being a good guy. And so it's really a movie about their friendship with the twist that Wyatt is convinced that people all over the world uh, and all over his social circle have begun turning into demons, including his Wyatt's uh, longtime fiance. And 
he has left uh, North Carolina or wherever in some, you know, murky circumstances. We're not sure what happened. We're never sure what happened. And that's the great hallmark of this movie. We're never sure uh, whether or not Wyatt is actually seeing demons and we are in a straight up demon movie or whether Wyatt is a guy who desperately needs psychological care and we are in a this guy could snap and kill everyone in the movie movie. And so in that way, it's much like frailty, but it's a millennial sort of frailty in Brooklyn with just these two guys. And so it's about friendship and, and, and personhood, not so much about family, the way that uh, frailty is about. And so it's a, it's a different dynamic, but it's got the same sort of big question of here is an overwhelming outside force. Is it true or is it not true? Right. And in terms of the shooting style and the, the score, is it styled as a horror movie or is it styled as an indie drama? It's, Kind of styled both, right? I mean, the the score is not a horror score, but there are the occasional jump scare, and it is definitely filmed in tones of creeping dread, right? You are horrified or terrified, I guess, um, depending on your definitions, as the movie progresses. But you're not sure why. You're not sure, am I horrified because this guy, this poor guy is surrounded by demons? Or am I horrified because this guy's going to kill everyone in the movie that I've grown to like because they're they're well put together as characters. So it's a thriller, not necessarily supernatural thriller. Right, exactly. And so you you have a lot, you know, going on, but uh, but Blackshear doesn't give away the 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 answer early either by coding Wyatt as clearly crazy crazy or by coding the movie as clearly a supernatural movie. So you are left to wonder what genre am I in? And then once you uh really get into the story, you're just wondering what is truth, which is a vastly better and more interesting question. Uh, next up, we come to a title that if you were just to pick a whole bunch of elements that uh, would intrigue Robin and put them in the same movie, you would have a laundry man directed by Chung Lee from Taiwan, which is a hitman ghost movie. Tell me more. Yes. Uh, this movie, it was sort of one of those ones where we had a number of things that, that were possibly good, like you say, hitman and ghosts. And then we also had things that were, well, I don't know, maybe they're, maybe they're not so good. It's, it's, uh, referencing, uh, Wong Kar Wai and it's, and it's about, you know, uh, the, the beautiful, uh, you know, sort of, uh, growth of emotion, but fear not. It's a hitman ghost movie that just looks really, really pretty and has that same sort of wry, not so much ironic look, but detached look that, that Wong Kar Wai gives to movies. But the, but the action is, is, is very post-born. Um, our, our hero, the hitman, uh, is just sort of haunted by all these people that he's been killing pretty much. And they're like living in his apartment and talking to him and he sees them all the time and it's really messing with him. And so he goes to his boss, the woman who runs the dry cleaners that he works out of as his cover. And he's like, I've got these ghosts. And she's like, don't worry, I'll send you to the best medium. She's totally hot. You'll like her. And he goes to the medium and we're never quite sure if the medium believes in ghosts at the beginning, but she absolutely is like, oh, you've really got ghosts. You've got a serious ghost problem. This is going to cost a lot of money. As ghost problems do. As ghost problems do. And so we are then in, simultaneously, we're in sort of the hitman movie genre, and all hitman movies are about, does the hitman stop being a hitman or not? And then we're in the ghost movie genre, plus some martial arts every now and again, plus a good old-fashioned thriller like what's going on with these ghosts what's happening what's the story and so as we under as we go through that and the ghosts start saying oh what i want is for you to kill people then 
(laughs) mostly the people who hired him to kill them in the first place. Uh, Then it starts to escalate and the cops arrive. And now we have a a cop characters on the outside asking the same question that we're asking on the inside. Really well structured, but it's never uh, it never slows down in the way that uh, a one car wine film might. All the uh, all the emotion is observed, but it's observed while other things are going on. So it's it's um, uh, it is it is not as languid as we feared. And it's pretty pretty good without being just hyperkinetic or crazy. So it's part of that burgeoning uh, sort of second stream of Taiwanese cinema that is uh, more commercially paced and genre oriented and definitely something that I'm going to keep a lookout for. The next item on our list is Hitchcock Truffaut, which we find sufficiently interesting that we're going to talk about it in December and give it its own segment. After that uh, comes the 1920 silent Sherlock Holmes by uh, Arthur Berthollet, um, now, this actually ran on TCM not so long ago, but dratedly uh, ran on Sunday night in primetime, which is a no-go area for our DVR. I don't know about yours. So you'll have to tell me about uh, this early silent version of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, this is a uh, recut by the French of the 1916 movie based uh, by William Gillette on his stage play, Sherlock Holmes, which he uh, wrote basically... Because Doyle was sick to death of writing Sherlock Holmes stories, and he said, hey, uh, maybe if I turn this into a play, all the mouth-breathing losers who just want Sherlock Holmes will go to that and leave me alone. <laughs> and I will get more money from Sherlock Holmes without doing the work, which, as a writer, obviously... There are worse reasons to do film tales than that. And so, uh, William Gillette does this great stage play, and, and it's hugely successful and popular, and it sort of really creates in... Uh, the, the mind, not only of audiences, but also of actors, how to play Sherlock Holmes. So when you see William Gillette playing Sherlock Holmes in the silent film, you can see Basil Rathbone, you can see Jeremy Brett, you can see Benedict Cumberbatch. They're all in that same tradition of the imperious Sherlock Holmes. All the gestures and motions and body language are in so many ways just the same way. And you think, well, no, that's how Holmes is written. But if you read the Holmes stories, he's, ne- he's almost never imperious. He can be a jerk a lot of times, but he doesn't have that sort of, you know, a lordly disdain for people. I mean, that that is a solely stage Holmes in the way that um, uh, uh, because Holmes, when he bothers to care about you at all, is always very nice. And uh, the the you know, the, the sort of lordly I'm above all you peons. I'm the star of the movie. Holmes is is a creation of the um, uh, of William Gillette. And it's interesting that having seen that, I now appreciated Robert Downey Jr.'s Holmes better because he's one of the few Sherlock Holmeses not to play Holmes like William Gillette does. And that becomes a much more interesting choice to me in retrospect. But anyway, this movie is a, because it's a French movie, they cut it up and they made it into a serial. So they they would, you know, end it on a, on a big note. And then they would say next week in this theater, come back to see whether or not Sherlock Holmes defeats the perils of the gas chamber. And, like a lot of films in 1916, they're sort of rediscover, they're discovering how to make thrillers while they're making the movie. So the thrills get sort of increasingly interesting as the movie goes along. That's how you want to do it. The, the peril of the gas chamber is, you know, we're going to lure Holmes into a gas chamber and blow it up. And then Holmes gets to the gas chamber and he's like, ah, the old Stepney gas chamber. And it's like, well, way to ruin that surprise, Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next up, we have Schneider versus Bax. Yes. Uh, this is from uh, Belgium uh, slash the Netherlands. Uh, it's by Alex Van Warmerdam. Uh, and uh, this is a film I saw at uh, TIFF. 
And I think you liked it one tiny tick more than I did. So why don't you remind people what this dueling hitman movie is all about? Uh, there's a hitman named Schneider, and he is uh, called in by his weasel boss on his uh, birthday to go and kill this guy, Bax. First, he's like, nah, screw you. It's my birthday. It's my day off. And he's like, nope, Bax is a child killer. You have to take him out. So Schneider goes out. And things begin to go wrong because yeah. it's... And, and you know right away that he is not a child killer. Right, yeah. That, That's not, it's not a spoiler. Yeah, the guy that. just makes it up to get uh, Schneider off the dime. And right away, things begin going wrong. And it's it's sort of a black comedy farce almost of a, of a hit. Of a, it's definitely a black comedy. It's almost a farce of a hitman movie. And then we find out, and I don't know, yeah, call it not a spoiler really, that in addition to being just an odious person with a family crisis meltdown, backs is also a hitman. And so the last act is sort of their game of cat and also cat as we figure out if Schneider or Bax will win. And the thing that I liked about it was that having established that Schneider is a really good hitman, he never becomes comically bad at being a hitman, right? If the joke uh, would have worked better if he's not good at being a hitman, they just take the joke out and they do a different joke, right? They, yeah, it's the, the universe is conspiring against them both. Right, yeah. And so it's a... It's a, it's a, it's a strong movie in that way. I liked the ending, um, uh, better than I thought I possibly could for a movie coming out of Belgium. Although I think that it's, uh, a Dutch director making the movie in, uh, the, Fle the Flemish part of Belgium. So a lot of the, uh, curse of Belgian film maybe doesn't stick to this one. Um, and I, uh, and I just enjoyed sort of the, the tactical workings of it with the, with the character elements. I mean, it's not, it's not going to make anyone forget really great Hitman movies, but it's, but I thought it was pretty all right. Uh, like I say, if you if you like a hitman dark comedy, this is probably a pretty good one. Um, I like this one. I really, really liked his previous film, Borgman, uh, which is available on uh, disc. It was distributed by Alamo Drafthouse in uh, the U.S. And uh, it's sort of a demented modern uh, fairy tale. So uh, you probably can't find Schneider and Bax right now in most territories, but you can find Borgman. So look for that one. Uh, next up, we have Three Days in September by Derejan Pajowski from Macedonia. Yeah, this is a pretty straight up, you know, sort of post-Hitchcock uh, noir. And it's about a, a woman who's on a train going back to her family's lake house and another woman who's on a train having just possibly killed her pimp. And now they have sort of a, a they, they meet, they have nothing in common except that the prostitute character has nowhere else to go and so gets off the train at the lake house. And then it turns out as in a proper noir that Anyone who's going home to the lake house has got bigger secrets and bigger problems going on. And so the character we think is the bad news character gets sort of sucked into the, uh, the noiry activities here at the lake house. And it's, you know, it's two strong female characters cooperating by dint of sort of social pressure, forcing them together, not because they're best friends or whatever. And then it just sort of moves along in its little tickety way. Uh, it's, um, it's not as, what do I want to say? It's not as assured in the directing as Hitchcock. And so, and the characters have a little more, um, uh, they simultaneously have a little more agency and a little less interest than a Hitchcock character, which I guess is sort of the payoff you, you do for adding a little more realism to it. But, but still in all, you know, it's, it's a Macedonian noir. And how many of those do you get to see? And finally, a title that I uh, also got a chance to see, not at TIFF, but at the After Dark Film Festival. I think we might have even been watching this on the same day. This is Tag by Shion Sono. Uh, from Japan, one of six films the director has made over the course of the last year. Uh, so tell them about Tag. Okay. I'm not actually sure at what point telling people about Tag becomes a spoiler, because it's not actually as though... So tell them about the first scene. Ken. I'll tell them about the first scene. 
The first scene is a uh, Japanese schoolgirl and a bus full of Japanese schoolgirls. And they're all teasing her, as Japanese schoolgirls will, and looking out the window and singing and doing whatever. And even as it's going on, you're thinking, this seems a little too over-egging the, the pudding here on these on these schoolgirls. This movie, I think seems something else is going to go on. Yeah. And then, sure enough, something does. Because while she's crouched down on the floor picking up a pen, a supernaturally powerful mega wind tears the top of the bus off along with the top of all the other passengers. And so she stands up on this bus running down this empty highway surrounded by this devil wind and and coated in spraying blood of her classmates. And then the movie gets weird. Yes. Um, <laughs> there's exactly. just, I, you know, I, I almost don't want to, there's a couple of really strong bits that happen early and they're really disorienting when they happen. So maybe I won't even, I won't even it's, spoil that. Let too us much. say in a, a phrase that will uh, come up later in this podcast, it is an existential mystery. It is, yes, um, with a perhaps uh, unsatisfying solution, as happens so often, and may indeed happen later on in this podcast, you can say. Yes, um, and if I can uh, thread Jack the segment just a little, I saw this as part of a double bill with another Sean Stone movie called Love and Peace, and this is one that is going to get a limited release next year, and it is about a timid uh, salary man who is uh, bullied by uh, the other people in his workplace. He wants to be a uh, rock star, uh, but he's just uh, too much of a mess. But one day he turns his life around by uh, buying a pet turtle. <laughs> but then after he's bullied by his co-workers, he, in a moment of weakness, he flushes the, uh, the turtle down the toilet and the turtle goes to a strange magical place where he begins to develop the necessary superpowers to make the master he misses so much, a rock star. So this, the synopsis for this is uh, boy meets turtle, boy loses turtle, and then it gets weird. Yes. Um, and uh, I, and it's in the trailer, so this is not a spoiler to say. It's also a Christmas kaiju movie. Well, there you go. Uh, I liked the tag, and I uh, really, really liked Love and Peace. Boy, was he lucky that that turtle didn't connect him with the flushing. Because if you flushed a turtle and it develops superpowers, I think it's a 50... I think you're on the bubble whether it uses them to make you a rock star or kill you. This turtle is very loving. Well, yeah, he, he that, forgives that, him. but a, a loving turtle, as I have learned uh, in similar contexts in Dracula movies, are the worst ones when they turn on you. Well, this one, things get crushed, but it, it goes a different direction than but you only might hearts. expecting. Only hearts. Uh, yes. And on that note, uh, let us uh, move to the next segment. historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and game 
gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The cryptic symbols chalked on the trash can, the sight of mysterious strangers backing into shadowy doorways, and the strong sense of numbers stations coming through your fillings tell us we've entered the Tradecraft Hut. And in the Tradecraft Hut, uh, Robin has been trying to get this guy onto the podcast for so long that you think perhaps he's using his espionage skills, many of which he invented, to escape, but this is the time that we are going to talk, come hell or high water, about Pyotr Rachkovsky, the greatest and worst spy in all of Russian history, possibly. Right. And, given... and not to be confused with somebody else named Peter Rachkovsky, who wound up accidentally in the script for a while. So He was a Bulgarian nationalist poet, so if you right. have been hanging on hoping that we will cover Bulgarian nationalist poetry, this is not that segment. Right. We'll have to wait until Bulgarian Poetry Hut. Yes. Uh, so, the the uh, spy here, give us his, his era and his uh, context. Yeah, he works for the Okhrana, the uh, Russian secret service um, uh, under the Russian Empire, and he begins, actually, as a radical. Um, he, he actually begins as a prosecutor in the sort of Department of Justice or whatever, and he's not uh, mean enough to uh, socialists, and so they fire him. And so then he drifts into the underground and sort of says, I got fired by the government. I hate the government. And the socialists are like, hey, good for you, Rachkovsky. You can be one of us. And then, of course, he turns them all over to the Justice Department and says, look what I did. I arrested a bunch of socialists. And they said, well, I like the cut of your jib, pal. And they make him First a leading double agent, then a double agent runner, and then they make him bureau chief for Paris in 1885. And Paris was one of the two centers of Russian imperial espionage abroad. Paris governed the West and Bucharest governed the East. And so they had these two big offices for the Okranka, or the Okrana rather, that are in those cities. And they sort of got to write their own policy and do their own thing, because if you were in uh, St. Petersburg, where the Tsar could see you, policy kept getting changed, and it was always crazy because the czar was, you know, the czar. But if you could pretend you didn't hear about it, you could just sort of run your own shop. And Rajkovsky sort of rises to the top very rapidly in uh, in Paris, not just the top of the Okranka office, but also to the top of the espionage, uh, what do I want to say, ecosystem there. He hires a bunch of former agents of other Western governments, uh, British agents, uh, French agents, former Surete detectives, and sets them looking for uh, radicals and socialists. And one of his big shticks was he would find a bunch of radicals somewhere. And these are radicals in the emigre community who are going to cause trouble for Russia? Right. right. Okay. But he would, yes. And then, but he would also look for radicals in the local community that would cause trouble for the host government. So in, in, um, in Switzerland, for example, Rachkovsky agents find guys who are 
Swiss radicals who are going to set off a bomb or something, and they supply them with enough bombs and whatnot to make them look scary, and then they go to the Swiss government and say, look what we found in Switzerland, these guys who are going to blow up Switzerland. And then the Swiss authorities would arrest all these dudes and say, well, thanks, Okranka. That's really great. You can have access to our police records and see if you can. Right. So they get uh, brownie points. Well, they get brownie points. They get intelligence sharing. And they really build up that sort of um, old boys, old spies network. And, and this is, again, this is something that, uh, you know, if you just sort of looked at the superficial history of spying, you'd think, oh, this is the CIA's gig, right? They come in with this really great um, uh, intel source. They find a, a local problem, and then they become your big buddy to help you solve it. And this was what Rutschkowski was doing. Another thing that Rutschkowski did, as I implied, was when he found a terror group that wasn't quite scary enough to get good headlines for him, he would send in agents provocateurs and say, why don't you murder the minister of culture? Why don't you blow up the embassy? Why don't you do this or that or the other thing? And provide them you know, with, with bombs and dynamite and, and the materials needed to make them into a scary terror group before he then of course, would have them arrested to get good right. headlines and, and get promoted at home. Good old false flag. Good old false flag operation. And then the other reason to do that is because if you're the guy who can get bombs, all the really dangerous bomb-throwing terrorists will start looking for you, and so you can find them. It, it's a fly it's a flypaper op, it's a false flag op, and it's also a, you know, raise your own um, uh, budget and credibility op all at the same time. And are these uh, innovations of his, or is he just really good at executing them? The nature of tradecraft is it's always hard to tell who innovates what, but he is, if he did not invent it, he is like Eli Whitney, the guy who puts it all together and says, if we have a whole process for locating, infiltrating, turning to our own uses, and strategically exposing terrorist groups, then this system will basically run itself. So he invents tradecraft, uh, uh, sort of the high-level spycraft as it is practiced, you know, for the next century and a half. Um, the uh, Okrana does not invent the safe house, but they formalize it. The Okrana does not invent uh, index card tabbed records because the French Surete does it, but he takes it from the Surete and applies it to espionage work. The Surete, of course, was a very, very uh, technologically forefront crime-fighting uh, organization, and he takes their 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 system of, of tabbed records and applies it to spying in a way that probably no one had ever done before. So he's taking this sort of existing uh, body of lore and turning it into one solid piece of smooth running masterwork. And because he's running par the Paris office for so long, from 1885 to 1902, he has huge amounts of continuity. So it rapidly becomes true that if you're anyone in the spy world, if you screw Rutschkowski, he will just wait around and screw you some other time. So it's better to get on his good side and do him favors. And of course, if you do him a favor, he'll do you a favor. He'll find you a terrorist group to arrest and make you look good. Or if there isn't one, he'll build one and then you can arrest them and make him look good. And so uh, he winds up with a super strong personal political stake in what's going on in Paris. He becomes the czar's ambassador to the French government, for example, which is the equivalent of if, uh, you know, we've got a guy over in, you know, uh, Russia trying to work stuff out with uh, Putin over Syria is like, no, Obama's going to have the station chief for Moscow do the negotiating instead of our ambassador. That would be the, 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 the degree to which that was not done then, isn't done now, but it's how powerful Rechkovsky got. He was right. a... He was an empire builder, as they say in bureaucratic circles. He was an empire builder. And he would reach out to Russia's seeming ideological opponents to build his empire, right? He would work with British spies... 
um, even though Britain and Russia were, of course, great power rivals. And he would work with German spies if he needed to. And he would work with the Pope, even though as a representative of the great Orthodox power, he's not supposed to like the Pope. But he recognized that uh, the Pope had, you know, lots of, uh, what do they say, soft power even back in the day. And so he set up sort of an offering to, hey, Pope, if there's ever anything you need spied on in Europe, we'll take care of it for you. And then the Pope owes you favors. And how great is that, right? So uh, he's amassed all of his power. Does he... Uh, get a nice, uh, slow, comfortable exit, or is 1917 bearing down on him? Uh, what happens after 1905 is that he is brought back to run the entire Okrana, uh, because abortive revolution of 1905 scares the bejesus out of everyone, and they look over at... Um, well, why do uh, we have this hyper-competent guy over in Paris when we need him here? Over in Paris, when we need him in, in Moscow, running or in uh, St. Petersburg, running everything... And he uh, shows up there and he, you know, not being a dummy, probably sees the Bolshevik Revolution coming. Maybe he's got plans going or maybe, as people keep saying, he was running half the guys like Stalin has no chronophile and was certainly informing on fellow members of the Georgian underground for the Okrana. So it's like he was a weasel or something. Maybe he was almost as if maybe he was running Stalin. Maybe he was running Lenin. We don't know because he dies in 1910 and being a brilliant spymaster does not like leave you know records around and perhaps picks a fortuitous uh, time to die in russian history yes yes he does um he does manage to nearly kill um uh i, I forget who it is it's it's a it's a fairly important russian like an archduke or a count or something and so a, a group that he's running either blows the guy up or comes super close to blowing the guy up and that is sort of a you know, a, a come to Jesus moment maybe for him where he's like, maybe I need to sort of keep a little more of a... Am I running them or are they running me? Yeah, right. And so yeah, he has a similar thing where he, he basically creates a plot to kill the czar and lets the French expose it to make sure that the people around the czar who are for the French alliance get strengthened. So he's making policy while exercising policy. The other thing that he does is the forged letter from uh, a political opponent to make them look bad, which, of course, the British would do against the communists later on with the Zinoviev letter. Um, and he is the guy who almost certainly hires the guy who writes the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And this is why he is now the worst spy, in addition to being as horrible as spy masters by and large are. Not only is he working for a horrible totalitarian government, he's also the reason we have the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, because he sees a, what was at the time, a pro-revolutionary pamphlet, a political pamphlet about Montesquieu and Machiavelli having a philosophical dialogue in hell. And he says, if you strip out all the Montesquieu part and you boost up Machiavelli to make him look even more evil, and then you sign it enemies of the czar, now you've got something. Now you've got a manifesto. Now you've got you know, the the the, the uh, blank check to do anything you want. And who better to frame than the Jews who we all know are up to stuff? And so that's where the Protocols of the Elders of Zion comes from, is Rachkovsky working out a methodology by which he can create an imaginary terror enemy to be funded to fight. And since he knows it's not the real terror enemy, that basically gives him a, a slush fund of agents and resources, as well as uh, catering to his clients' prejudices. You know, if you... If your if your boss wants to hear about you know one set of bad guys, you you don't get promoted by coming and saying no, it's the Chinese that are the problem. You get promoted by coming and saying nope. It turns out it was the Zionists all along. Now uh, there's something hilarious here because you mentioned at the top of this segment that this was sort of a floater topic that we've had waiting in the wings and has never quite gotten into the podcast, and we subbed it in at the last minute 
uh, when you pointed out that the conspiracy corner thing that I had queued up was, uh, in addition to being ridiculous and fun, anti-Semitic. So we wound up <laughs> yeah. replacing it with the guy who commissioned the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which shows that in the world of conspiracy, in the world of tradecraft, you can never go more than two steps before being pulled into the orbit of good old anti-Semitism. Yes, but um, uh, but Rachowski, in addition to um, all the other bad things he did, also sort of, you know, again, he didn't invent anti-Semitism. It was around before him, but he sort of... Yeah, no, no one can take credit for that. He sort of made it really work. Uh, so that's why I put him at the at the pinnacle of my bad guys of tradecraft um, uh, list over and above the fact, oh, also, he's defending the horrible, horrible czarist regime. So are there any uh, pop culture references to uh, him, or is he still kind of uh, obscure in the precincts of nerddom? He's pretty obscure. He does show up a great deal in Foucault's Pendulum because, A, it's a book about conspiracies, and he invents one. Um, and so people like to play on the commonality of his name, Rachkovsky, with the name Rakovsky, which was an alias used by the Comte de Saint-Germain every now and again, and used even more by people who wanted to make him look like he was a uh, pretender to the throne of Transylvania. And so uh, Rakovsky or Rakovsky or Rakowski gets used for, or Radetsky gets used for Saint-Germain a lot. And now you have another hyper conspirator of mysterious background who is lurking at the center of a web and his name is Rakowski. It's, you know, the, the work of a moment to make that guy into Saint-Germain. So he winds up, I think, through Umberto Eco getting a little bit, bit of a higher profile, but he hasn't really had a breakout moment. I mean, there's like, you know, 8 million BBC movies about, you know, spies and he's probably been in a bunch of them, but. He's not like, you know, no one has yet done a, a awesome Sherlock Holmes versus Rakowski or Arsene Lupin versus Rakowski movie that would like turn him, you know, from uh, the, 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 the third rate dude into an awesome historical Moriarty like he actually was. And uh, is there a, a single source that people who want to know more about him would go to or would they have to cobble together uh, things from a Ken Height like library? Um, you can look in, uh, he's more central in the later echo novel, The Prague Cemetery, although again, that's a novel, so that may not be where you want to go. Um, the, there's a good book about sort of the 1890s, uh, world, the steampunk spycraft world that I'm fond of, uh, by Alex Butterworth, uh, called The World That Never Was. And that is a, um, story about the anarchist movement and the people who were putting it down. And by anarchist movement, I don't mean, hilarious people who, who uh, uh, loot Starbucks. I mean, honest to God, bomb-throwing anarchists from the 1880s and 1890s. And um, uh, the degree to which they get sort of wired into weird culture of the of the, of the the Belle Epoque. And that's a pretty good book on its own merits. And it's where, I guess you can put uh, Rakhtovsky into context. There's not, to my knowledge, a good biography of him, qua biography, which is kind of a shame because, like I say, he is the Eli Whitney of, of spying and so deserves... Uh, some uh, props just for being a, uh, or maybe the Henry Ford of spying is who I mean, the guy who takes all this other technology, puts it together, and makes it so that if you do anything correctly, you're doing it the way that he taught you to do it. Well, since he uh, burned all the records, uh, that's probably an impediment to a uh, yes. would-be biographer, and it's probably uh, politically touchy still even to uh, write about him in uh, Russia, I would imagine. So uh, we may have to wait on that, but what we don't have to wait on is our next segment.
This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness, you can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. So we're about to enter the gaming hut, and this is going to be an unusual gaming hut, as uh, Peter Frampton uh, up on the wall uh, can attest. In that actual gaming is going to occur here. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, you may have uh, recall from our uh, previous uh, episode where we touched on the topic of existential mystery that Ken volunteered to guinea peg himself for a segment in which I uh, run him through a, uh, not an entire existential mystery, because we want to keep it around 15 minutes or so, <laughs> but the uh, the opening of one which uh, you, uh, the listener, can determine whether this is interesting enough that you would ever want to uh, explore the same area yourself. So, uh, Ken, what is your character's name? Um, all right, I need to know first, am I a putatively cool uh, existential detective, like uh, uh, Lemmy Constantine, or am I a schlub caught up in things? You are a schlub caught up in things. I'm a schlub caught up in things. Okay. Uh, then uh, my name is uh, Brian Harker. So, uh, uh, Brian, you are uh, being driven in a pickup truck to your first day on the new job uh, for the uh, Roos Corporation. Uh, and it hasn't been made terribly clear to you what your job is. You thought that when you got picked up uh, today to go to work uh, that you would have that explained to you. But so far, you've just been uh, driving uh, in a pickup truck uh, by a man wearing an expensive suit uh, through... Uh, a, sort of a train of kind of a planes with a low scrub. It's a fall. The smell in the air is sort of autumnal, but uh, he's still kicking up a lot of dust. It's still kind of dry out. And he uh, finally drives you to, uh, in a sort of uh, field with some rocks in it, there's one of those uh, kind of uh, trailer office sort of things mm -hmm. uh, that you would normally see in a construction site, but there's no construction site around. And he uh, stops the truck. Yeah, and indeed, I assume there's nothing around, right? It's like a big old uh, Kansas plain out there. Um, a little more rocky than that. There's some uh, there's some rocks, there's some trees, but it's it's pretty flat. Right, yeah. Uh, pr pretty flat and featureless. And so he uh, gets out of the truck and he says, uh, here's your office, uh, Mr. Harker. And he leads you toward it. All right. So he leads you up the wooden stairs into the office thing and uh, opens the door. And you see that the entire room has been completely sealed off 
from all outside light. There's blackout blinders everywhere, and they're even taped shut so that there's a complete uh, atmosphere of artificial light. And he sets you down at a uh, table. It's a uh, wooden table. You've got a, uh, a metal, sort of unergonomic, old-fashioned kind of chair to sit in. And you see box after box after box of uh, these sort of legal document boxes. And uh, he uh, says, so uh, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you. Your, uh, we did a spectrographic analysis on your non-disclosure form, and we've uh, determined from that that it uh, is accurate and, and true. And so we're, we're glad of that. It would be a big inconvenience otherwise. So basically, your job is just to file all of the contents of these boxes in order. And uh, I'll come and pick you up uh, at uh, 5 p.m. And uh, your uh, first workday will be done, and we can go through any questions you might have then. I think basically it's all uh, self-explanatory. Uh, also make sure that the last guy, we had to fire him because he knocked over the lava lamp. And so he sort of points... Uh, kind of behind you, and you see this main feature of the room uh, is that in addition to the sort of uh, CFC light being projected by the overhead lights, that also there's kind of a uh, a lava lamp, uh, one of the and, and it's like a classic lava lamp with the red wax and the and the clear liquid uh, sitting there. It looks like it was maybe made in the 60s or 70s. So uh, anyway, uh, I think uh, that's all you need to know for the moment. And as I said, uh, there'll be a full debrief at the, the end of the day if you need one. And so he uh, closes the door and uh, steps outside and you hear his steps on, uh, on the wooden stairs and you hear the truck driving away. All right. Uh, start uh, going through the boxes, right? I assume there's a file cabinet or am I supposed to refile them in the, in the boxes themselves? Uh, there's no file cabinet. Okay. Well, open up a box. Start looking at the documents, figuring out what in order it means. Um, so uh, immediately you see that they are not written in a language that you recognize. All right. Do they have dates or any other sort of indication as to what order they should be filed in? There are uh, sort of sigils at the top of uh, many of the documents and also sort of there are breaks within some of the documents. And there are sigils there as well. And uh, you're no expert, but they look kind of Mayan or Olmec or something. Mayan or Olmec or something. Um, and are the, are the sigils, uh, do they, uh, match, uh, like, are there, is there a run of, um, uh, little face sigils and then a run of, uh, little duck sigils or is it all randomy? Um, you, you see that there is some sort of uh, pattern. There are, uh, it always starts with a face and then there's an animal and then there's a plant and then there's sort of a geometric figure. So they're always in sets of four. And they're in, uh, and there's always that order by category. Right. Okay. Um, I guess start, you know, uh, sorting the, the, are they single documents or are they in folders? Uh, they're in folders. Okay. Uh, start sorting the folders out onto the desk. I assume it pretty rapidly takes up the whole surface of the desk. Right. To, to lay them out and then start looking for any sort of pattern in the sigils trying to impose order on this, uh, meaningless, uh, uh, document stream so that I can get the, um, uh, Get, get the files into something that approaches uh, order, um, I guess, within their own boxes. Are you uh, sorting the, everything within each folder and then sorting the folders, or are you taking everything out of the folders and making a master sort? Uh, he said to, uh, uh, did he say sort the files or sort the boxes? He just said sort. Sort, okay. Are there any indications on the outsides of the files to, that indicate that... There's also sigils on the outsides of the files. Then I'm going to sort them by file sigil order, although I'm going to open the uh, folders up and see if I can figure out 
what if there's any rhyme or reason to why some documents are in some file folders because maybe that would be a a clue to the organizational method. You must have been really hard up to take a job with the Roos Corporation. Uh, looking around hilariously in my in my metal chair, making it move back and forth. Who said that? You know who said that, Brian. You've known for a long time. And the voice is coming from the lava lamp. Of course it is. So I uh, I, I I look up at the lava lamp. Um, you know, no doubt shot from below, uh, Terrence Fisher style. Um, and it's uh, and I say, look, uh, look, man. I, I really need this job. Just, you know, keep to yourself and uh, we'll all get out of here okay, right? If that's what you prefer, Brian, I can be silent. Good. And I go back to uh, sorting the, the, the files out. I just hope you last longer than the last guy. Th- they told me that the last guy um uh, knocked you over. That's what happened to him. Yeah, that's always unfortunate when that happens. Yeah, it'll be more than unfortunate if you keep messing with me. Very well. I'll just sit here and burble. Yeah, stick to your knitting. And then there's a big thump on the side of the uh, office trailer thing, and it nearly sort of knocks you off of your uh, chair. Right. I'll bet it knocks the lava lamp over, too. Uh, The lava lamp teeters. Are you going to go and uh, grab it, or are you going to let it uh, fall over? No, I can't let it fall over. They they told The one thing the guy said was, don't let anything happen to the lava lamp. That I can handle. I may not be able to file Mayan glyphs, but I can, by God... Keep a lava lamp a vertical. Thanks, Brian. What was that on the outside? I don't know anything about outside. I just know what happens in here. Well, I, I, I shove the lava lamp back on the uh, shelf a little bit to give it a little margin of stability in case the thump happens again. And I'm going to try to go back to my filing. And you feel another thump. Uh, this time the lava lamp uh, is not disturbed. Uh, but you also hear this sort of uh, sort of hissing, keening noise that really curdles your, your blood. You just, uh, it just really deeply freaks you out and you begin to sweat. Is it uh, coming from outside or from the lava lamp? It's coming from outside. Okay. Um, it's like, seriously, man, you got to tell me what that is. I saved you from falling over. I'm afraid that it might be the shadow man. The hell? It's like broad daylight out there. There's nothing to cast a shadow. Maybe you'd better go look, Brian. Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you? No, I would like you to stay here and guard me in case the uh, trailer gets hit again. Really, I'm your most important job. I'm going to sort of um, look wildly around and then go to uh, the window on the side where the hissing is coming from and peel up the tape and try and peek out. And uh, there's sort of an outcrop of rocks and you sort of see this uh, strange kind of uh, kind of heat signature in the air over by the rocks. Oh, run my hand through my hair like, oh, my God. And it's like, it's just, it's just some sort of heat distortion thing. It's not a, sh- there's no shadows anywhere. Uh, and then you see a shadow. Uh, you see the shadow. It looks like a man. There's, there's no ice cream trucks anywhere. Uh, looks, looks like the shadow of a man with a sort of a brimmed, uh, kind of what might be like a cowboy hat. He might be wearing a duster. He might even be carrying a pistol. Mm. And the shadow is, uh, up, up over the rocks. Up over the rocks? Yes. So the ca- shadow is being cast onto the rocks. Onto the rocks. Right. Um, but it's being cast from above, not from, uh, the person who would be casting that shadow is not visible is not, but if they were visible, they would be standing, standing by in the between rocks. me and the rocks yeah. or, okay. Right. Oh, now there's a shadow. Now it's a shadow man. Just like you said, he's wearing a hat. I don't think it's a good sign when the shadow man is wearing a hat. You'd better go fight him. I don't know. I'm just here to file things. I'm not here to fight shadow men. You don't want the shadow man to knock me over. Do you? That's what he's trying to do. That's your number one job. As I can, uh, uh, he says, as long as he's out there, I can keep you from being knocked over. 
boom! The uh, trailer rattles and the uh, lava lamp has, has gone flying through the air. I'm going to jump to catch it. And you succeed in jumping to catch it. Like a football. Um, probably coming down on the, uh, to the extent they were ever organized, organized files and scattering them all over the room. So yes, now the files are all over. You've caught mm -hmm. the uh, lava lamp. And he says, I think you'd better set me somewhere down really secure and go out. You don't have to fight him. Maybe you'd just better scare him off. Uh, yeah, that'll work. Um, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna put the lava lamp inside one of the boxes, right? So that, you know, he can't That's good. fall over. I feel nice and secure here, Brian. And then I'm gonna put the lid on the box and see if it shuts the lava lamp up. Uh, the lava lamp isn't trying to say anything. Okay, good. I'm gonna go back to filing. Maybe I've hidden the lava lamp from this, uh, Shadow Man dude. Maybe if I just keep filing. Everything will make sense again. A rock comes through the window and uh, light uh, starts streaming in uh, through the uh, window. And it uh, a beam of light strikes the top of the desk where you're filing. And you see that the uh, uh, letters that are hit by the uh, light are beginning to fade and disappear. Fade and disappear, not change or anything like they're, that. They're being erased. Okay, I move the uh, the the files out of the light and see if the letters come back or not. Uh, they are gone. They are gone. Okay. Um, I pile up uh the 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 folders as near I can in sort of a, a dark corner, not like super neat, just sort of more shove them out of the way, and then I got to go out and deal with this uh, rock throwing shadow man jerk. And I say, um, uh, I got to go deal with this. He just threw a rock. Yes, I guess it is a very good idea of yours to go out and deal with it, Brian. Um, is there anything in the um uh, in the in the office that could be even remotely considered weapony, um, like a letter opener or a, a heavy phone or anything? Um, there's a selection of uh, uh, cutlery, and there's uh, like plates and dishes and uh, sort of the contents of uh, like a picnic basket. Okay, um, a, a bottle. As you're going through the picnic basket, you find a. Uh, a strange device sort of down in the bottom. It's a, a metallic ring. It's about uh, uh, sort of a foot in diameter, and it has this sort of grabber on the end of it. It looks like a, a, something that might, you might see in a science fiction movie. Oh, well, there you go. It's a, it's a crawl. I'm going to take it. And uh, so I, I grab the crawl, and I go out uh, the, the door of the, of the trailer. Just, is the door on the – it's on the opposite wall, I assume, of where the rocks and Shadow Man have been, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. So go out the door of the trailer and uh, kind of try and sneak around and see if uh, the I can see the Shadow Man dude or whatever. And you can still sort of see the shadow. And uh, judging from the shadow, the invisible dude is coming toward you. Okay. I'm going to try and um, uh, hunker down either under the trailer or near the trailer so that I'm in shadow as much as I can be myself. Okay. And so it's uh, coming ever closer to the trailer. All right. And then um, when it gets there, I'm going to uh, try and uh, point the crawl at it and say, um, what the hell's going on? Who are you? And you uh, hear uh, a thump inside the trailer and one of the uh, blinds gets ripped away, and you see a uh, sort of a distorted, pale, kind of corpse-like human hand pressed up against the window of the trailer. Uh, that's not good. 
I, there, there was not any room for a hidden corpse to be lurking around in that office trailer. You would right? have noticed. A I would have corpse. noticed that. Yeah. Okay. So, is the shadow uh, man still out here? No, the shadow is gone. Shadow is gone. Okay, I have to tear ass up uh, back into the trailer, you know, running and uh, generally demonstrating no uh, athletic or martial skill whatsoever. And and so you head on in. There's no one there, but nor are there any files. <gasps> well, they're in the one hand, they're, they've been filed. Um, is the lava lamp uh, still in his box? Uh, Brian, Brian, thank God you opened the door in time. It was reaching for me. The shadow man was reaching for me. Um, uh, well, you took all the files. Where'd he go? I don't know. I was here in this box. I'm not a lava lamp with x-ray vision, you know. says, look, yeah, you know what these shadow men, you know what, you, you know, you knew that they might show up, so you've got to start giving me some answers, or else next time it shows up and we're not going to know what to do, and you might get grabbed or, or poured out or whatever it is the shadow men want to do to you. I don't know very much, but I'd be glad to answer whatever questions you have if I can, if I can. Well, what are these shadow men? Where do they come from? I think they're the enemies of the Roost Corporation. Where do they come from? What's what, what's their deal? I am unaware of their deal. I just know that they wanted the documents and also me. Why do they want you? Uh, because I'm a talking lava lamp. Well, I mean, what do they got, a kid's party to go to? <sighs> I won't answer questions if you're going to insult me. How many other talking lava lamps do you know, Brian? I don't know. I don't hang around with that kind of crowd, usually. You have a smart mouth on you, Brian. No wonder you found yourself at that terrible axis in your life. No wonder. If only the Roost Corporation really cared about me. Yes. Well, they used spectrograph, uh, spectrographic analysis enough, so they must have thought I was all right. I suppose. I suppose I'm going to have to rely on you. What if they come back? It says, yeah, what if they come back? Then what? I've got this, I got this krull and maybe some forks. I don't think that that's anti-Shadow Man material. You've got to start giving me more answers if you want to survive this. I can just leave. I've got feet. Uh, you're not, you better not leave if you've signed the document, right? Say, so, yeah, I probably signed a bunch of documents. Well, you do want to get back home sometime, don't you? Says, well, yeah, I just walk out to the road and I hitch. Won't be the first time. And I guess from what you're saying, it won't be the last. I don't recommend it, to be honest. But I'm not the boss of you. Look, I'm just saying, if you want to, uh, if you, if you want to, if you want my help, you've got to start giving me some help. You've got to tell me where these shadow men are and how to get those files back. I don't know where the shadow men are, but they're outside. You'd have to walk around and find them, I suppose. You better take me with you if you go. Yeah, the thing is, then I get hit with one of those rocks and you're in the desert. Uh, if you leave me here, I'm easy pickings. Perhaps that's exactly what they want, is to lure you away so that they can take me. Well, in that case, maybe I should just stay here. And you should explain to me how we how we can fight them. If I knew how to fight them, that is your job, Brian. It is your job to fight the shadow man. Yeah, well, I... Like I say, I've got forks and this thing. What is this thing? Uh, uh, I believe that's what's known as a neutralizer. I assume that means it neutralizes something. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Um, how does it work? I'm not sure. I don't have hands and I'm unable to manipulate uh, complex objects. Did you try pointing it at the Shadow Man? Yeah, but he just sort of went inside, I guess. Did you uh, run up to the Shadow Man and try to grab him with the grabber? He was gone. What grabber? That, that grabber mechanism there on the end. The sort of claw-looking thing. I see. I just pointed it at him, and then he vanished. But it turned out he was inside, from what you say. Only he wasn't a shadow. He was like a zombie. Well, I suppose your choices would be to wait here for Mr. Staff to come back at 5 p.m., or to 
try and rectify what has happened and to go out onto the plains. Uh, there will be a uh, in, 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 an intercut scene of, uh, of, of Harker sort of uh, sitting with his head in his hands, looking at the neutralizer, desperately casting his eyes around the inside of the, of, of the office, and then um, uh, sort of uh, uh, either cursing or smoking or something to indicate uh, general um, uh, despair, and then uh, pick up the lava lamp uh, and the neutralizer. Um, if, the, if the picnic lunch has got anything like a sandwich or a, any kind of portable food in it, um, put that in a pocket and then head out. Uh, so you uh, walk for a little while, and then uh, in the distance you see... Uh, uh, something that looks like it might be uh, someone lying uh, in sort of a pool of kind of a sandy uh, area. It looks like it might have been part of a quarry earlier, but it's or like a sand pit or something, and you see that there might be uh, someone lying there. Um, uh, head down into the pit to see if they're okay. Um, and you see that the uh, person is actually only partially visible. There's sort of bands of uh, uh, them that you can't see. But it's a uh, an older uh, man. Uh, his uh, face is kind of weird and wizened and uh, sort of dead looking. And he's wearing a cowboy hat. And he uh, has a, a duster on. Uh, there's a, a toy gun on his hip in a holster. And he's uh, lying there in a, a pool of blood. And there's a couple of uh, uh, stray bits of uh, the document pile uh, sort of flapping around in the wind. So he looks like he was the guy that was casting the shadow for the Shadow Man. Yes. Right? I point the neutralizer at him and I say, uh, where are my documents? Um, well, he's lying in a pool of blood. Was well, he dead? Uh, he's dead. Oh. Um, I roll him over to see what killed him. You see that there's a a, a knife blade uh, jutting out of his back, a big serrated knife. Well, you might have mentioned that. Well, you've rolled him over, <laughs> so you, you see... Oh, I, I see. He was lying on his back. Yeah. Right. Well, I roll him over. Okay. He was, so he was, um, he was stabbed by... So I, I say to the lava lamp, um, what are these um, uh, shadow men? They've got knives and then they stab their shadow selves? What the hell? What's going on here, lava lamp? What's your name? Is it just lava lamp or? Uh, my name is Eric. Of course it is. Probably the voice of Eric Roberts. Well, what's going on here, Eric? Here's the guy that was casting that shadow, but it looks like they've stabbed him and taken the documents. Or is there some third force out here now in the desert that I have to deal with? I'm no expert on shadow man, but it looks like... You uh, know more about shadow men than anyone in this conversation, Eric. Well, if I was to deduce from the available evidence, I would assume that uh, whoever put him up to this betrayed him and uh, took the documents. So did they turn him into a shadow man? He cast the shadow, right? That's his hat. That's his little gun. Those are... Excellent questions. We'd better keep going in search of answers. And so there's our first installment of the existential mystery. Uh, make of it what you will, boys and girls. Uh, and that's uh, if we've ended our existential mystery introduction, uh, we've also ended this installment of our podcast. So be sure to come back and join us next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Proof prophecy dooms unwarranted by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such patrons as Norman Dean. Is there... Ken and Robin themed merch you'd like to see as part of our upcoming Patreon campaign? Then leave a comment on the blog post for this episode. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.